I told you last week that we were going to start the book of uh, Matthew this Sunday. Finally getting into, after, with a little bit of Advent uh, pre- preparation, getting into the Gospel of Matthew. I'm excited about that. I especially couldn't get, wait to get into the first part of the chapter. Family expectations, I call it. The genealogy. Really, we're going to spend this Sunday just before Christmas on the genealogy of Jesus, on the family tree of Jesus. You know, the genealogies are actually important in all of the four Gospels. You might think about it just, we know there's a genealogy in Matthew and in Luke. Well, let's think about it just for a minute. Did you know that the four Gospels each present a different facet of Jesus? The Gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus as a king. The Gospel of Mark shows Jesus a servant. The Gospel of Luke especially demonstrates Jesus' humanity as the perfect man. And the Gospel of John shows Jesus in his divinity as the Son of God. Okay? So king, servant, man, and God. You see the uh, contrasts that are there that we're showing, we're showing four different facets. Now, let's talk about the genealogies in the Gospels. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a genealogy. It starts with it. The Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is the king of Israel. He's the Davidic king of Israel. Israel begins with Abraham, and the, and the royal line begins with David. So it starts with Abraham, works through David, and it gets to Jesus. That's the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Mark. Jesus is a servant, the humble servant of the Lord. Does the Gospel of Mark have a genealogy? No, it doesn't. It doesn't because nobody cares where a servant comes from. Now the Gospel of Luke has a a genealogy as well, but it's different. It's a genealogy that also traces uh, through a Davidic line, but it's a different Davidic line because it comes through Mary, not Joseph, because it's it's showing Jesus' genuine humanity, and that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. It doesn't just stop at Abraham because it's, it's the beginning of humanity. Jesus is the second Adam. And his line is traced all the way back to the first Adam. Okay, there's a third genealogy. Well, actually, the second one, because nobody cares about where a servant comes from. Now we get to Gospel of John. Does the Gospel of John have a genealogy? Ah. The Gospel of John is about Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus and his divinity, Jesus and his deity. And so how do you write the genealogy of God? In the beginning, God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's the genealogy of God. It's the only way to start it. only way you can describe it in the beginning was. So all of the Gospels have something in them relating to this genealogy. It, it matters. And so, yeah, I want to take a little bit of time to look into that family tree a little bit. Because, actually, families are sometimes a little messed up, aren't they? You know, I had a chain for the kids. Somebody brought me a chain, and it was a good, had all these links, and uh, every link was important, every link is strong. Before that, I just had this little chain that I was able to come up with. We are able to scrounge around and find. It's a little chain, but it's one of those chains where the links come apart. And so we actually had to take scotch tape and hold the links together so that the chain wouldn't fall apart on me in the middle of my object lesson. A scotch-taped chain. Really? 
That doesn't exude strength, does it? Maybe, maybe that feels a little bit more like our family tree or our family line, our family train. There are some links that are barely holding together, right? A little more scotch taped than steel. Well, families sometimes a little bit messed up, never perfect, but God ordained. In fact, God even joined himself into human family. And that's recorded to us in the genealogy. One of the things that tells me is God uses family, God uses a family line, and God will use your family. God will use my family. Sometimes I look and I'm not sure how that's going to work out, and yet God will use this family in the midst of the mess. And as we look back over this family tree, I hope we can take some encouragement of that. And I thought, you know, one of the best ways to do this was actually to, to it's not nice to talk about somebody else's family, right? So I thought we would, we would invite somebody to come, but we would, we would look at this family tree from somebody from within that family. So I'm going to step into a first-person role, and I'm going, to, I'm going to describe this family from within that family, all right? So I have this, I have a robe. Actually, I picked this robe up in the royal city of David, so I think that's appropriate to our theme. And that's how you'll know that it's no longer me. My family tree is an imperfect one. In fact, there's an overall pattern that God wanted you to see. When God set apart my family tree at the, at, the, at the beginning, at the end, he describes it this way. From Abraham to David. From David to Babylon. And from Babylon to Jesus Christ. We enter my family tree and we sum it up in that same threefold description. That there is a rise from the promise in Abraham. There's a rise toward David. And then from David and his sons, there's out from that rise, from that pinnacle, there is this sliding down into ruin as the, as the Davidic royal line gets worse and worse and worse. And then out of that ruin, out of those ashes of Babylon, there is this restoration that God himself does in the middle of my family tree. And I was in the middle of that part. Now, I said family's not perfect. Let me give you a few examples. Some of them you know. You remember Abraham. You know our father Abraham. But Abraham was not perfect. I mean, Abraham, through him, through his descendant, he's going to have a son, and that's who the whole world is going to be blessed, and, and he, there's going to be a promised descendant through him. And what does he do? Twice he almost gives his wife away. How is he even going to have that son if that happens? And yet God, God gets in the way of it. You know our father Jacob Jacob, not even the firstborn. He even grabbed that. He tricked his brother that he would, he would take the role of the firstborn, but God wasn't interested in any of, the, any of those shenanigans. God had just decided whom he was going to use and how he was going to do it. And God could even use Jacob. 
What about King David himself, the very pinnacle of my family tree? When people look at my family tree, we look back to David. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a descendant. I'm royalty. You see the gold on my robe? I am a descendant of David himself. Yeah, what about that, David? Let's not look too close. David, our greatest king, was an adulterer and a murderer and, and often was tempted to, to go count his armies because he trusted more in his own resources sometimes than he trusted in God. And yet, Abraham, or David, our King David, is called as a, as a man after God's own heart, a man who knew God's mercy a man who knew God's forgiveness, a man who knew when he failed, when he fell flat on his face, he knew who to cry out to. And he could say, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. That's a man after God's own heart because, let's face it, families are imperfect. Our lines are messed up, as are our own lives. What about the women? I've talked a lot about the men. You women are sitting there saying, uh-huh, that's right, yeah. Well, there's only four women mentioned in this particular family tree. And yeah, look at those four. Tamar, Rahab. Every time Rahab's mentioned, she's mentioned as Rahab the harlot. Why do we keep bringing that up? And then there's Ruth, the Moabitess, the outsider, the one who doesn't really belong here. And then there's Bathsheba, you know, the one with her upstairs outside bath. This is not your typical Sunday school group of girls, is it? Why are these the ones and these the only ones that are mentioned in the midst of this family tree? Well, men, don't get too, don't get too cocky here. These women are all mistreated, taken advantage of by men who have the power to do it, aren't they? And yet God lifts them up out of an awful place and God puts them in a royal line. I told you about Salmon and Rahab. And that example of, of, of Salmon doing the right thing, we see how that plays out. Ruth is going to be the grandmother or the great-grandmother of King David, and all the kings that have come after him. She's in the Savior's line, as is Bathsheba. Of, of the several wives that David had, it's Bathsheba and her son Solomon that God chooses to continue that line through. God will take what seems soiled, what seems ruined, and God will take that life and use it, because that's the life that shows his grace. You see, all of us have it. All of us need that. Some of us just might not realize it. Nothing wrong with me, I think. But God shows us otherwise. And this is the family line that God himself joins into. Some in my family seem to start well, but finish poorly. You know of Solomon. Solomon had it all. Solomon had the kingdom handed to him. David did all the work, and he said, Solomon, okay, take it and run with it. And Solomon ran. Solomon ran all over the place. Solomon had the privilege of building a temple for God, and Solomon liked building the temple. He, Solomon liked building temples so much, he kept doing it. He kept building a temple for this God and that God and all the gods of all of his wives. Man, if I could tell you one thing this morning. One woman and one God is enough. 
Be devoted to that one woman and be devoted all above all else to one God. It's not that God's trying to keep something from you. It's not that God is trying, it wants you to be unhappy. No, he wants you to be better than happy. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to live in a life that experiences his faithfulness, even when it hurts. I mentioned Solomon. Maybe you know of and maybe you don't, the boy king Joash. Joash was only eight years old. He was protected from the time he was a baby. He was protected by the high priest in his family because his mother, his grandmother actually, his grandmother had killed all of the, all the boys in the royal line when her son, the king, was killed. She killed everybody else so that she could be queen. That's how power hungry she was. And yet Joash, Joash, when he's eight years old, the high priest brings him out and makes him king. And under the high priest's guidance and tutelage, he rules well as a young man. But along the way, his mentor dies. And he begins to drift away from following the Lord. Such that my grandfather Joash, at one point he ends up, when he's confronted with his wanderings away from God, he ends up murdering the son of that high priest who protected him and mentored him. A man who should have been to him like a brother. And he has him killed instead. Because I don't want to hear the word of the Lord from him. That's too common in my family, a resistance to hear the word of the Lord. But in the midst of that, there are unexpected heroes. My family's a royal family, and there are unexpected heroes in the midst. You know of Hezekiah. You know of Josiah and of Jehoshaphat and his fearsome choir. Right? In fact, you remember Jehoshaphat and the choir and the musicians, and they go out playing and singing. And as they're going out and singing and the song goes before them, the enemy that they're going out to meet just dissolves into chaos and ends up fighting against and killing one another instead. I, sometimes I wonder, was the choir that good? Or was the choir that bad? I was glad to see that that didn't happen this morning with your choir. It was wonderful. I was a little worried. Sometimes choirs, weird things happen. I told you about Salmon, an unexpected hero who hardly anybody knows about. We named a fish after the guy because he was so good at going against the current. Boaz, his son, he must have learned something from his father about doing what's right even when it's going to cost you something. Even when it's going to spread out your wealth over to another family. And Boaz takes in this Moabitess Ruth. Not only does he provide himself as a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, but he provides himself as a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. And when he and Ruth have a son, this is a son also who will provide for Naomi and will carry on that family line. And aren't you glad that he did? Because through that kinsman redeemer, through that marriage and that son, through Boaz, in the line of David, our king comes. No, no, not David, but the king who came after him. And then, I said we moved from Abraham to David and the glory years. And then out of that destiny, there was, there was this decline. 
and that decline into Babylon. And yet even in Babylon and after that, when the royal history seems wiped out, still God is working. God is working. And there along the way, a man named Shealtiel, which maybe you haven't heard of, Shealtiel has a son. And Shealtiel names his son Zerubbabel. Zerub, seed, Babel, Babylon. A, the seed in Babylon. And she, Shealtiel is planting hope. That there is yet hope. There is yet that seed promised from Abraham. Even though we're in Babylon, there is still that seed. There is still a descendant. There is still that line. And God's going to keep his promise. And God brings Zerubbabel and others with him back out of Babylon. And God speaks through his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. He speaks specifically to Zerubbabel and he tells them this, I will take you. I will make you because I have chosen you. Through Zechariah, he says to Zerubbabel, it's not by might. It's not by power. And that's a good thing because we don't have much of that, right? It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's God the Father speaking to his children. There's a pattern for me there. We need more of that as fathers, don't we? We need as fathers to be speaking to our children. We need as fathers in a family to be speaking to the next generation, to be reminding of God's truth and to be reminding of God's promises because in my own family, in our own experience, we've lived out this pattern of rise, ruin, and yet God's restoration. We have had a destiny, and yet we have seen us decline, and yet God delivers. My forefathers, my more immediate family, saw our fortunes rising with Zerubbabel. There was a renewing of hope that there was a promised seed who's coming. But as that day grew near, the trouble also became severe. First it was Antiochus, that Syrian king, coming out of the, uh, out of, out of the ruins of Alexander the Great's empire. Antiochus arises, and Antiochus would destroy Israel. He would ruin both our temple and our faith if he could, but God would not let him. God raised up the Maccabees. God used the Maccabees, this ragtag band of Jewish farmers. God used them to hold off and to beat back the, one of the largest, strongest armies in the world at that time. But it wasn't long before the Maccabees and their descendants begin, begin fighting against one another. A tug of wars back and forth about who was going to be in charge, about who was going to be king when they weren't from the Davidic line at all. Our family was still there, trying to be quiet off to the side. Because if you've got other people fighting with each other about who's going to be king, you don't want to be known as the real kingly line in the midst of it all. I'm just a young father at the time this is happening. Rome finally steps into this power vacuum and this chaos. Rome steps in and they say, we're going to take control. And they kept it. I was just a young father. I had my own young son to worry about. His name, the name I gave him, was Jacob. 
Because I'd, I'd heard of this before. Out of a Jacob, who really wasn't much, but out of a Jacob, God raised up a whole people, a nation for himself that he would accomplish his purpose through, and I wanted God to do it again. I wanted God to raise up again our nation and fulfill and accomplish his purpose for us as a people. And I named my boy Jacob in that hope. Well, I had no idea what God was going to do. But through me, Nathan, you probably didn't know I was even in the story. Maybe you haven't even heard of Nathan before. But my son was Jacob. And Jacob also had a son, my grandson, Joseph. And Joseph, we arranged, families got together, and we arranged that Joseph would be betrothed, would, would, would take Mary as his wife. She would be betrothed to him. And what we didn't know at the time is what God was going to do with all that. You see, we don't know what's going to happen in our family tree after us. We don't know what God is going to do in the middle of this mess, in the middle of all this stuff with our family gathered around. We can imagine how it's going to be, and yet sometimes that apple cart gets messed up, and yet look what God is doing. You wouldn't have known Nathan, but you know my grandson, Joseph. And I hope you know the Son of God, whom God gave into my Joseph's care when he came into the world. Look what God has done. He has lifted Nathan out of obscurity. God has lifted me up, and God has written my name right down there in Matthew's gospel. But better than that, God has written my name in Jacob. And Joseph, he's written our names in heaven. And that's what we're going to rejoice in. The guardians of the babe who was God's Savior. You know, never estimate, never underestimate what God will do. Never underestimate how God might use your family. Look what God did in our family. Although nobody around would have ever expected it, in fact, even that night, nobody around would have even noticed if, if God hadn't rounded up some angels to go gather some shepherds and tell them so they could tell others. I think God did that kind of just as a, as a favor to David. That's what God does, doesn't he? God cares for his family. He knows you. In your family like in my family, you've experienced the similar kinds of inability, infidelity, and failure. And your hope for the future sometimes crashes against the rocks of reality. I'm telling you this. God's promise is good. God's promise overcomes the greatest failures of men and brings a Savior into the world. Maybe this is also what God is doing and will do in your family tree. Maybe God will use your family to bring that same Savior to others who don't have it. Imagine what God might do through your family tree.
as the promise of God in the midst of the failure of humanity. Look what God will do. He brings his Savior into the world. He brings his Savior in in the midst of broken humanity. In a very imperfect family, the only thing that family had going for it was they were in the line of God's promise. And so, my brother and sister, in Jesus Christ, so are you. There's not a person in this room that, that, that has to be outside of that family, outside of that line of blessing in Jesus Christ because it's received by faith in him. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That comes by trusting in him. Something David to Abraham and all the rest struggled to do too. But it's as simple as that. God asked down through history from family to family to family over and over again, will you trust me? And his salvation, his rescue is held out to anybody who simply says, God, I trust you for your promise, for your provision. That's what God will do even with the very weakest of us. He will use us in his greatest work. One of my favorite quotes was by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody heard this as a young man. He heard, he heard it said, the world has yet to see what God will do through the man or woman wholly yielded to him. And Moody said, by God's grace, I want to be that man. At the end of his life, Moody confessed. He said, the world has yet to see what God will do through the man or woman wholly yielded to him. Because Moody would say he himself had not been that he had not been wholly yielded. And yet look what God did through Moody. I would disagree with Mr. Moody to one, to one point, and I'm probably pushing this point a little bit, but I would say the world has seen what God would do through the man wholly yielded to him. And that man, there's only one. His name is Jesus, and look what God has done. God has accomplished eternal redemption through him. And to the extent that you and I will yield as well, as weak as we are, God will do, well, God will continue that work. He extends that work. He, he hands out the invitations of that, his greatest work, through you. Because as God told Zerubbabel, it's not by might. It's not by power. We don't have any of that. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. That's a promise you can count on. I want you to look around at your family as you gather in one way or another, as you contact, maybe it's only through phone calls, but as you have some connection with family, as you think about family over Christmas, I want you to think about this. Including the weird uncles, including those moody grandchildren who you can't seem to pull away from their cell phones. Tell yourself again, Jesus came for us. Jesus came into a messed up family for us. And after you've told yourself that again, tell them. Remind them. You be the one to bring hope back into somebody's Christmas. You know, we thought, speaking of hope, we thought the elections were over. They're <laughs> still going on, it seems like. One group of people are saying, Hope is rising. Another group of people are saying hope is 
falling. Now, if you're in a family gathering or if you're in a bigger gathering of friends, chances are you're going to gather around with people on both sides of that. And if you're not, if you're in a group of people, if you're in a group of family that everybody's thinking the same way, would you get out and meet somebody? <laughs> Seriously. But in the midst of those conversations, hope is rising, hope is falling. Oh my goodness. They feel that way, either way, because they're looking for hope in the wrong place. Our hope is in the Lord. And let's remind one another. Let's take this one last opportunity. If somebody's still stuck on an election, let's take this one opportunity to just say, you know, I see that there's a, things are a mess, but where my hope really is, is really, that's what Christmas is about, that God sent his Savior into a world that needed real hope. God can change your family's expectations. God can change where their hope is, and he would use even the likes of us to do it. That's one of the things I see in a family tree. Would you pray with me? Father, would you do that? Would you use us in the midst of our family and friends? Lord, in this week up to Christmas, the days that follow, Lord, as we gather as families, as we participate together, Father, use, use us, Lord, as instruments of your hope, where hope can really be found. Father, remind us that we are not alone in this. We are not unable simply because you know our name. You know who we are. That if we would simply present ourselves to you in the same way that we would present our offerings this morning, in the same way that we would write down that card, we would write down a prayer request, in the same way if we would simply present ourselves, God, use me. I don't know what you want me to say, but Father, use me with someone today, tomorrow, on Christmas. As you do that, Father, we will give you the thanks and the glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.